The little old lady seated herself behind the bus driver. Every ten minutes or so, she'd pipe up, Have we reached Oriskany Falls yet, Sonny? No, lady, not yet. I'll let you know. He replied time after time. The hours passed. The old woman kept asking for Oriskany Falls, and finally the little town came into view. Sighing with relief, the driver put on the brakes, pulled over and called out, This is where you get out, lady. Is this Oriskany Falls? Yes, he bellowed, get out. Oh, I'm going all the way to Albany, Sonny, she replied sweetly. It's just that my daughter told me that when we got this far, I should take my blood pressure pill. <laughs> that fits for older people. Well, last Sunday we had a question discussion period. And uh, it's interesting when you discuss some questions, they raise other questions, and I have two that I need to follow up on. One question was, do we at Stonebriar Church practice what is stated in James chapter 5, that if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church? And I said, we did. Well, the question is, have you ever seen any miracles from that? And I say, yes, not here at Stonebriar. But in a former church, there was an elderly gentleman who was a statesman in the church who uh, was losing his eyesight. He couldn't read a newspaper, couldn't drive his car. So we elders prayed over him. In two weeks' time, he was healed. Uh, it took about two weeks. A more spectacular one was at another church where there was a little girl, I suppose she's about four years old, who was severely malnourished. It was in her, the problem was her digestive system. Whatever she would eat would just flush through the system and she would not get the nourishment she needed. She was tiny, she was, uh, she was uh, not properly nourished, and so the family, the parents, asked the elders to come over, which we, which we did. We followed James chapter 5. <laughs> I was the last one in prayer since I was the pastor, and so the, the mother, the, the little girl, right after the last, as soon as I said amen, the little girl said, now can I eat whatever I want? Because she was prohibited from eating nuts and popcorn and caramel corn. And, and so the mother turned to me and said, Well, Pastor, what do you think? And being the great man of faith I am, I said, When is your next doctor's appointment? <laughs> and they said, Tuesday. And I said, Well, why don't we wait until Tuesday to see what you can eat? We elders left the, the house, and as soon as we closed the front door, that little girl began to eat peanuts and popcorn and caramel corn, and she was healed. I mean, just like that, she was healed. Years later, they, I mean, they moved to Kansas City, and years later, I had some meetings in Kansas City, and lo and behold, the father showed up. One of my first questions was, how is she doing? She was healed. She was healed. Later on that week, I did see the little girl, and it, it was a miracle. I've not seen that yet here. We have prayed for people. Uh, I've not seen a miracle, and I pray that that may happen. The second question that is an outgrowth of last week is this one. Please help me understand 2 Chronicles 7.14. If I heard you correctly, because God is speaking to Israel only, are we not to take God's promise for today and apply it to our own land? Because of Hebrews 4.12 saying, the word of God is living and alive, I take it to mean every word of God is living and active for today. And I agree. I agree with that. 
there is a basic principle of scripture interpretation that you have to understand. There is interpretation and there is application. They are two totally different things. When you interpret the passage, you interpret in the light of the context. What is it saying? So I'd like to have you look at the context of, of uh, Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. Second Chronicles 7:14. This is the dedication of the temple. And we read in chapter 7 verse 1 that Solomon had finished prayer, praying, fire came down, and so on. Then we have a Solomon um, offering thousands, thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. Verse 8, so Solomon observed the feast at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly, who came from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, that's from the north to the south. And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly for the dedication of the altar. They observed seven days and the feast seven days. Then on the 23rd of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to the people of Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal all their land. Now get the context? You have to see it in the light of the context. It's clearly talking to Israel. And if he's, say, he's saying to Israel, and now I'm just interpreting, he's saying to Israel, if I'm disciplining you with locusts or with drought, and you who are my people repent, and you humble yourselves, and you pray, then I will heal your land. That's the context. You have to interpret the passage according to what it says. Now from that we extrapolate principles. The Word of God is living and active and powerful than any, than any twitched sword. So you turn from that now to application. That's where Chuck is so brilliant. He interprets the passage, and then he's masterful at applying it. So we ask our question, ourselves the question, so what? How do you apply 2 Chronicles 7.14 to the United States of America? We are not God's chosen people. We, we, we just can't say we are called by his name, that's true of Israel, but not us. We have to be honest and say we're the United States of America. We are not the United States of God. So, we, so I, I took it this way. This is a classic demonstration of what, involve, what is involved in revival. This is revival. So although we are not God's chosen people, we ought to humble ourselves and pray and turn from sin to God 
and let God bring about revival. One of the questions you remember last week was, why is it that every, every revival is preceded by prayer? I think this explains it, that every single revival is preceded by prayer. If I could say very quickly, in my lifetime, I've never seen a time when our nation, the, 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 the people of God in our nation, of all denominations, are praying for revival. I've never seen that in my lifetime. But you find more and more and more people are praying for revival. I pray that every day, literally. Not for the sake of the United States. I want that, of course. I love my country. But I pray for God's honor. Just think of the glory that would be brought to God if thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in the United States would turn to God. That would bring great glory to God and possibly preserve our nation. It's amazing that even the secular world is recognizing in the United States that we're going the wrong direction. We need revival desperately. So I would apply that to say this is an explanation of revival. Let me take another quick illustration of the difference between interpretation and application. Uh, I just read this recently. <clears throat> In the Upper Room Discourse, uh, Satan, uh, Satan fills uh, Judas's heart and he leaves. And the Lord Jesus says to him, whatever you do, do quickly. Now, you could take that passage, whatever you do, do quickly, and apply it immediately. Don't do anything slowly. Do everything rapidly, as fast as you can. Well, that's, that's taking a passage and then applying it without interpreting it. You have to interpret it and then apply it. So when we're in Colossians, what, we, what do we do? We join the church at Colossae, and we read it like we're in the first century, and we read it like we're part of that congregation, and then we apply it to our lives today. So you must make the distinction between interpretation and application. Very good question. <laughs> this is an interesting one. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 29 to 30, that there be no marriage or being given in marriage in the resurrection. This would seem for believers after the rapture, which is true. The believers before the rapture will also be in the millennium. That must mean the believers after the rapture will also be in the millennium. These will be the ones who did not take Satan's number and were saved during that time. Now, let me explain what that's saying. According to the way we study prophecy, we see that the rapture of the church is going to take place. The dead in Christ will be resurrected. Then after that, there will be seven years of tribulation. At the end of that, we will return with Christ, and Christ will establish his kingdom on this earth. Now, when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, there will be people who will be saved during the tribulation. There are people who will come to know the Lord in that seven-year period. So at the end of the tribulation, there are going to be two judgments, one of Jews and one of Gentiles. The one of Jews is given in Ezekiel chapter 20. The one of Gentiles is in Matthew chapter 25. To determine of those who are living, who came through the, through the tribulation, who trusted in Christ to go on into the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and those who did not, will be put to death. There's a terrible verse in Luke 19 
uh, I, I just shiver whenever I ever read it. Those, and this is talking about the judgment at the end of the tribulation, those who would not that I should reign over them, in the Greek words is slaughter, slaughter them in my presence. So they'd be put to death. And the ones who are alive will go into the kingdom. Now here's the question. Isaiah eleven sixty nine 69 tells us that the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Does this mean that the tribulation saved will have different bodies than the raptured saved and have children during the thousand years? And after the thousand years, and we have the new earth and all will have Christ-like bodies for eternity and no more born children. Yeah, they caught it. After the tribulation, we go into the thousand years, there are going to be people with mortal bodies. In fact, Isaiah says the child will die at age 100. So there'll be still death, and there'll be people born. Um, there'll be rapid reproduction multiplying on the earth for a thousand years. So you have natural bodies reproducing. Then you have those of us who'll be here as well, with resurrected bodies will be here, and Christ glorified. Now that fits exactly with what you have in Matthew 17. The last verse in Matthew 16 says, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the, see the Son of God coming in his kingdom. And I'm sorry for the chapter division. Then chapter 17 has the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ is glorified. And with him are Moses and Elijah with spiritual bodies. And with them are Peter, James, and John. All together at the same time. They're seeing what the kingdom is going to be like. In fact, Second Peter says this is a foretaste of what the kingdom will be like. It's a, it's a guarantee of the kingdom. So yes, we'll have all these people interspersed together during the millennium for a thousand years. Christ glorified spiritual bodies, and then also physical bodies. Here's another, we have some good ones today. In the book of Judges, chapter 1, God tells Judah to go up and fight the Canaanites. But Judah asks Simeon to go with them, and then when they go out to fight, Judah says they'll help Simeon. Now, do you get, is Judah, refers to himself as Judah, and then you have Simeon helping Judah and so on. Uh, were they making some assumptions that this is okay? What do you think about that? Well, if you will, I'd like to look at two verses, two passages. First of all, Genesis 49. So if you will, slip back to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, where, where Jacob is making prophecies concerning his sons, his 12 sons. 49, chapter 49, now verse 5. <clears throat> Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Verse 7. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, isn't that interesting? There are no land allotments for Levi. And there are no land allotments for Simeon. They're scattered in Israel. Now let's explain this still further in Judges, in Joshua, Joshua chapter 19. And this explains what we have in this whole interchange of Judah and Simeon. 
If you will, Joshua, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Isn't it Joshua after? Yeah, it is. Joshua is after Deuteronomy, isn't it? I'm teasing you. Joshua chapter 19. Those of you with electronic Bibles have found it long ago. Okay, Joshua 19, verse 1. Then the second lot fell to Simeon, to the tribe of the sons of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Judah. So they had no specific land allotment. It was just scattered in the people in the tribe of Judah. Now drop down to verse 9. The inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah, for the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them. So the sons of Simeon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance. That's in fulfillment of what Jacob said, that Levi would not have any land allotment, which they did not, and neither would Simeon. They're just scattered in Judah. So when they refer to Judah helping Simeon and Simeon helping Judah, that stands to reason because they were interspersed with one another. Very good question. Very good question. Another one. <laughs> okay. This is the political season, so here we go. This is going to take a little time. Would you suggest as a starting point for no, excuse me, what would you suggest as a starting point for writing a Christian constitution? Can we use the laws, parenthesis, not ceremonial laws, end of parenthesis, God gave Israel as a pattern for a Christian constitution? Should God be the ultimate authority rather than the wisdom of men? Certainly, there, that, that must mean godly right and wrong and not worldly right and wrong. How can we know the com complete counsel of God if we leave out the Old Testament? I would argue for a state that follows the law of God, but not a theocracy that is ruled by the church. The separation of church and state, as in the Old Testament, seems reasonable. There was a king over the state, but a high priest over the church. What are your thoughts? That's very, very interesting. Uh, what should be the best constitution for the United States or for any country? The problem with any form of government is human depravity. I don't care what kind of government you're talking about. The problem is the sinfulness of man. Many, many years ago, I can still remember this conversation on a plane. There was a gentleman who had graduated from the university several years earlier, and we were talking about government, and he said that uh, in a bull session, a long bull session in the dormitory, in the secular, the secular college or university, they came to the conclusion the best possible form of government would be a benevolent dictator. And I said, you're going to have it. That's going to happen. I said, it's not going to be a dictator. It's going to be a king. A king is going to rule over the world. And of course, he was mesmerized, right? And it made possible to go on to give the gospel. The problem is the depravity of man. Where are you going to find a benevolent dictator? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. When he suggests the possibility of having a theocracy and you have Old Testament as a pattern, you can't avoid it. Israel was a theocracy. You have God, the king, and the priests were under the king. So you have God, the king, 
and then the people. That's a theocracy. And you can't divorce God from um, religion in the Old Testament Jewish economy. You can't do that. So we don't want a theocracy. Theocracy can be very dangerous. It goes all the way back to your definition of what's the kingdom of God. Well, I'm not going to get that. That's another rabbit trail. But the whole point is you can't have absolute authority vested in one man because of sin. Therefore, I think our Constitution is a stroke of genius because you have three parts of the government. So we talk about balancing government. And the government, of course, as you well know, is the legislative, the administrative, and then the judicial. The trouble is when one of these gets out of line, you have real problems. For instance, when the judicial, instead of deciding what's right and wrong, begins to legislate, you have problems. When the administrative leaves the responsibility of administrating and goes into, into, uh, the, into the legislature, you've got problems. That's why they have the Constitution. The Constitution was meant to protect the people from the government. Did you hear me? The purpose of the Constitution was to protect the people from the government. That's why they say government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's not a, a government for the government, by the government, and so on. It's not that at all. The whole thing is set up with this balance of, of powers in order to protect us from the government. The trouble is it's gotten turned upside down so that now <laughs> the idea of a public servant, now that's a classic oxymoron, public servant. Good night, they make laws that benefit themselves apart from the citizens and so on. So I, I think that the best form of government is what we have because of the depravity of man. Uh, Tocqueville, as you well know, visited the United States and he says the strength of the United States is the quality of its people. And he says the government that we have will be successful until the citizens get their hands on the treasury and then it's going to collapse. And right now what's happening? People are buying votes, the officials are buying votes by giving things to the government, by giving things to the people, by giving things to the people. Uh, the problem in any government is the depravity of man. I don't think you can do anything else than that. It goes on to say this, is there such a thing as godly discrimination? Can we treat Muslims differently from the perspective of the state because they want to destroy all that we hold dear? Now that's an excellent question. The problem with the Islam religion is that they believe in a theocracy. They cannot, nor will they, separate government from religion. That's why the Ayatollah is over Iran. It's a religion, it's a theocracy. They believe that the government is the religious organ. We believe in, obviously, we believe in immigration. Uh, all of us here are descendants of immigrants, uh, but it's legal immigrants. And they are immigrants who were assimilated into the United States. I know they spoke their own language. I can still remember they were German-speaking Lutherans and Svenska, Swedish-speaking Lutherans and Norska, Norwegian, and so on. They would have church in that in their 
in their language, but they were assimilating in the United States. You cannot have that with Sharia law. Sharia law. You can't do that. So you have to treat Muslims very, very, very carefully. They are not geared to assimilate into our culture. It's a real problem. Uh, that, that's a problem, big problem. Okay, next one. Randy Elkhorn made an allusion in his book, Heaven, which struck a responsive chord with me. He suggested we are going to have responsibilities assigned to us by God to challenge us and provide opportunities for growth. One area he mentioned was potential plants of God for activities related to all of the created universe, planets, stars, black holes, and so on. I so enjoyed my career in the space program. Continuing such activities with God-given new capabilities and under his tutelage has great appeal. Now, that's a very interesting subject. Brandy Elkhorn's book on heaven is, is, a, is a very important book. The thesis of the book is that life in heaven forever will be much like life on earth without sin. It will be like Adam and Eve before the fall. We'll be working. Now today, W-O-R-K is a four-letter word, but that's because of sin. It's a privilege to work. It's a privilege to have responsibilities. And it'll be without sin. And that's what he emphasizes. His whole book is a, is a rebuttal of the Platonic idea of heaven. You're sitting in a cloud plucking a harp. No, it's not that. There are going to be activities, activities on this earth. So the question is, will I be able to pursue the space program? Very interesting question. As I look at um, the concept of rewards in heaven, I get the idea, oh, but there's another thing I was going to say before I get that. Uh, there's another statement that needs to be made. Randy Elkhorn bases many of his comments on heaven on verses that deal with the millennium. Remember, it's rapture, tribulation, return, millennium. And many, many verses that are in the millennium, he applies to the eternal state. He can do that in many ways, which is correct. My students at Dallas Seminary often heard me say, the kingdom, the millennium, is the front porch of eternity. Many of the blessings that are in the millennium go on into eternity. So what you see in the millennium, I think, except for sin, will go on to eternity. Now, the closest thing I can find is when I look at the rewards that are given for the millennium, they're rewards of responsibility. You'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, don't you know we're going to judge angels? There, there are responsibilities that are delegated. And in fact, you, you find that in Acts 19 and so on, you find that um, in Matthew chapter 25, that faithful people will be given rule over cities. Uh, one man will be ruling over 10 cities, another over five, and so on. You get the idea that the main thing is, is uh, responsibility. Now, if we're going to judge angels, you may have something about the space program there. <laughs> I'm, teasing, I'm teasing about that. I don't know how far we're going to space about that, but, uh, but we will be given responsibilities, I think, many times in conformity with what we have here.
Very interesting. How should I pray for God's kingdom to come soon and for God-fearing leaders to rise to power to promote peace for believers? I desperately want Jesus to return soon, as well as for God-fearing leaders to rule us. But I sometimes feel like I'm praying for total opposites, since evil times must precede the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, that's interesting. There's no doubt about it. We are to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. I don't think we do enough. The Lord said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, may your name be hallowed or honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every one of those requests in the Lord's prayer is for the coming of the kingdom. In fact, when you look at um, Revelation, you talk about the prayers of the saints. I think the prayers of the saints are not praying for Aunt Susie's broken hip, but the prayers of the saints for the coming of the kingdom, when Christ is going to be glorified. We should be praying for the coming of the kingdom. And we should be living in the light of the rapture. At the same time, we are to make provision for living on this earth. I knew of no one like John F. Walford, the late president of Dallas Seminary, who honestly believed that the Lord would come in his lifetime. Max and I saw him the day before he passed away. And he was so disappointed that it was quite obvious he was going to die before the rapture. But that same man was over a huge building program at Dallas Seminary. When I came to Dallas Seminary, the seminary faced Swiss Avenue. The address is 3909 Swiss Avenue. In his lifetime, they switched the whole outlook of the seminary to face Live Oak. It was a huge building program, buying properties on Live Oak, putting up buildings, and he was behind all that. So there you have that strange apparent anomaly of living in the light of the rapture and at the same time making provision on this earth. So we're supposed to do both. You can't give up. For for instance, when you find the, 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 the servant that's serving faithfully and the king comes. So you're supposed to be going about your work just as though the rapture is not going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. But to live your life that way, that's why a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You keep on working and working and still expect the Lord to come. So um, we, we, we just live that way, expecting, hoping that the rapture will occur, but we don't know when. But living faithfully on this earth, even so, just be found faithful. <laughs> this is a tough one. for We're facing it here in Max's family. Is it all right for a Christian to be cremated? Then this dear lady gives one of the best defenses for burial in contrast to cremation that I've seen succinctly given. Here's what she says. Cremation has its roots in pagan religion. Number two, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob set the example of burying their dead. Even Joseph made Israel promise to take his bones, which should be his body, uh, take his bodies to the body to the promised land and bury him there. Number three, the human body is a wondrous creation of God. To burn it on purpose 
especially since believers are looking to be raised bodily and changed at the rapture of the Church, feels disrespectful of God, though I know that buried bodies will decay and turn to dust in the grave anywhere. I don't think it's a sin uh, to be cremated. Obviously, the cost is terrifically different for having embalming, burial, and all the other expenses in contrast with cremation. And for this, I'd like to have you turn to 1 Samuel, chapter 31. 1 Samuel, chapter 31. 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter in 1 Samuel. In verses 10 to 13. Now remember in 1 Samuel, Saul and his sons were killed by the Philistines. They had bisected Israel. The Philistines had bisected Israel, divided it basically between north and south, and, uh, and they took Paul's, they, they cut off the heads of Saul and his sons, and then nailed their bodies to the wall at Pachon. Now look at verse 10. We read in verse 10, and they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they, uh, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. They burned the bodies. Now, if it was a sin to burn the bodies, you'd some, have some idea that that was wrong. But instead, these people are called valiant men. They looked upon heroes as heroes. So I don't think the problem is uh, the burning of the, the body. I don't think that's the issue. Uh, the issue is faith. Hear me carefully. In Romans fourteen twenty three, Paul says, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You know what he's talking about? Foods. The observance of days. And he's saying this. If you have any question about foods, and you eat the food with doubts, you're sinning. If you have a question about days, and you don't observe the day with faith, you're sinning. Two Christians can do exactly the same act. For one will be a sin, for the other it won't be. What do you mean? Well, let me explain or illustrate. This is back when Roman Catholics did not eat meat on Fridays. Some of us can still remember that. They would not eat red meat on Fridays. They would only eat fish. Every restaurant throughout the whole United States would always have fish on the menu on Fridays because the Roman Catholics would not eat meat on Friday. Well, I was teaching the book of Romans, and the Roman Catholic came to know Christ. What if they converted? And uh, a few weeks later, I asked him, how are you coming along? He said, I'm having a terrible time. I said, what's your problem? He says, I feel so guilty when I eat meat on Friday. You know what I said? Don't you dare eat meat on Friday. If you have doubts, you're sinning. Now, since then, that's been lifted, of course. Um, but if you have a doubt about something, you go ahead and do it, you're sinning. Why is that a sin? 
Well, think about your mental process. I don't know if I should do this or not. I'll do it anyway. Look what's going on. There's no faith there. You're not concerned with your relationship to the Lord. You're just being totally self-interested. So whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Two people can do exactly the same thing. One will be sinning, the other would not, depending on whether you can do it in faith or not. So you have questions about anything, don't do it. Now, if you have questions about cremation, don't you dare do it. You must be fully convinced in your own mind. In fact, that's, those are the words that Paul uses in Romans 14. Let every person be fully convinced in his own mind. Don't do anything with doubts. Uh, this is another one. The same person asked this question. For as the new heavens and new earth which I will make shall reign before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants in your name remain. Then this is underlined. Now shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be in accordance to all the flesh. Clearly, this passage speaks of eternity, the time of the new heaven and earth. But in what sense will believers look gaze on the corpses of unbelievers? Certainly will not look into hell. What does, what does this mean? I don't think that this is talking about what you're going to see through all eternity. I think that this is simply the judgment at the end of the thousand years. You're going to see these people put to death. And you look on their corpses, that's it, that's it. Then you go on into eternity. I don't think that means you're going to be all the time in turning looking back. That, that, I don't think that's it. It's looking at the judgment that will take place on those people. Good questions, good questions. Very, very uh, thoughtful. This is a question that comes up quite often. Will sacrifice be reinstituted during the millennium, during the thousand years? Bible study resources call the temple described in Ezekiel 40 to 42 as the millennial temple. That's true. There's going to be a temple for a thousand years on this earth, a millennial temple. No temple in eternity. For God is present there. You don't need a temple. And there are provisions for sacrifices in this temple in Ezekiel. And that's true. There will be sacrifices during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Sacrifices. Christ has been sacrificed, that's it. But these will be memorial sacrifices. Just as in the Old Testament, they were sacrifices. They didn't save. They anticipated the sacrifice of Christ. So in the millennium, there'll be sacrifices that will look back and be memorial sacrifices. They have no atoning value, nothing that'll be salvation. I take it that those sacrifices will take place during the millennium. Uh, I won't take time to discuss this, but you may want to sometimes just look up the subject of the covenant of Levi. The covenant of Levi is said to be a covenant that will go through the thousand years. It's so interesting to hear much about the covenant of David, but nothing about the covenant of Levi. And the covenant of Levi is for the thousand years, and their sacrifices are going to be pure and clean and so on. Just look up the subject of the covenant of Levi. Oh, I didn't realize it's that time. Oh, man, we've got some questions left here. Well, we'll use these as a seed plot for next time. Let me bring this to a conclusion. 
we should ask, so what? Excellent question to conclude the hour on. The Old Testament sacrifices, many different kinds of sacrifices, many different kinds of animals. And they were multitudinous because they look ahead to the work of Christ. You could not describe the work of Christ with one sacrifice. All those sacrifices looked ahead to the many, many, many blessings of Christ for the variegated work of Christ. Likewise, the sacrifices in the millennium are going to look back at Christ and say, oh, what has Christ done for us? You can't get over it. So when we stop to think of who Christ is and what he has done, you've got the gospel. The gospel always revolves around two things. Who is Christ and what has he done? Who is Christ? He's God-man. Welded together in one person. Nobody like him in the universe. God and man in one. What did he do? (laughs) He died on the cross. Became a human. God-man. And then paid for our sins on the cross. So that we might be saved by grace. I can't get over Ephesians 1. That we might be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Three times over that we might be the praise of the glory of his grace. Why? For anybody to get to heaven, we're going to be praising God for eternity. Somebody will say, two saint in heaven? That's a joke. No, it's to the praise of God's grace. Grace means it's a gift. Salvation is free. And when I'm in heaven... I'll be a trophy of God's grace. And I'll stand there not because of what I've done, but but because of who Christ is and what he has done. And we'll be praising God for his grace and saving stand to a saint. Put your own name in there. We'll be praising God that you're saved by God's grace as a gift because of what Christ has done for you. I pray that every person has accepted that grace. You've recognized that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And you've turned to him. And you said, Lord Jesus, thank you. I'm trusting you to save me. I have no works. I have nothing to present to be saved. I'm just trusting you to save me. I pray that every person in this room has done that so that forever and forever and forever you and I together will be for the praise of God's grace. What a privilege. Our Father God, we thank you for this delightful class. We pray that there may be indeed a spirit of love and grace and fellowship an excitement, an enthusiasm for the things of Christ. We pray, Father, for those who are here who have never trusted Christ, and we pray that they may trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And above all, Father, we pray these things not for the glory of any teacher or any executive committee or any human person, 
But we pray this for your glory. May you receive the glory. May you receive the honor. Because it's all, all, all of your grace. Watch over us today, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your kind attention. Next week, we'll take up a new section of Colossians.